from PRX. This is Studio 360. I'm Kurt Anderson. And I'm sitting on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. This first level of garden. This is Thomas Jefferson's vegetable garden. I'd like to have the roasted chicken piece. Very well done. Editing is all about timing. I try to get a little bit away from the actual subject. You must get sick of your own voice, right? Studio 360. With Kurt Anderson. If you think about Henry David Thoreau, what comes to mind? Our life is frittered away by detail. Simplicity, simplicity, simplicity. I say, let your affairs be as two or three, and not a hundred or a thousand. Instead of a million, count half a dozen, and keep your accounts on your thumbnail. The young guy who went to live in a cabin he built in the woods to get away from the rat race? The mass of men lead lives of quiet desperation. The writer, whose aphorisms almost seem designed for the bumper stickers and coffee mugs of people who listen to public radio. If a man does not keep pace with his companions, perhaps it is because he hears a different drummer. Let him step to the music which he hears. Or the thorough, and that is how he pronounced it, although most people now, including me, until I was schooled otherwise, say thorough. The thorough who was a great proto-environmentalist. We can never have enough of nature. We need to witness our own limits transgressed and some life pasturing freely where we never wander. The book Walden, Thoreau's masterwork, contains all of the above. Vivid nature writing, self-help advice, and a fantasy of escape from the troublesome hurly-burly of the world. As it happens, the book was published this very week in August 1854. And it has influenced generations of young idealists, environmentalists, and back-to-the-landers. It helped create the image we still have of the lone writer going off all alone to create great work in solitude. But it also, lately, has endured some backlash, with questions about whether entitled young Henry Thoreau really was roughing it at all. For the newest installment of our American Icon series, producer Matt Frassica picks up the story of Walden. If you've ever read even a part of Walden, it's probably because it was assigned to you in high school. Like the students at Concord Carlisle High, down the street from Walden Pond, in the small town of Concord, Massachusetts, north of Boston. He like urges people to spend one day as deliberately as nature and just living in the moment and not getting caught up in technology. His purpose is to like gain an understanding of how he can improve his life and how he can live simply and not be corrupted by materialism. When he thinks about all the other farmers around him in Concord, he notes that they're working like all of their life towards all of these things that they don't need and that they're not going to be able to enjoy properly because once they're done working for them, they're basically going to be dead, you know? Walton has a kind of rebellious, anti-consumerist vibe that appeals to a certain kind of teenager. But not all high school students are fans of the book the first time they read it. It was profoundly disillusioning. That's my AP English teacher, John Deal. I went to high school in Worcester, Massachusetts, about 40 miles from Concord. That's where I read Walden in Mr. Deal's class back in 1998. Literally my first year of high school teaching. And he remembers reading Walden in his AP English class. I thought that Walden would be a much more engaging first-person narrative. I had thought there would be a through line, 
you know, that would make it the kind of story you could read the way that you might read a novel narrated in the first person. Uh, and Thoreau also is really content not to stay on a topic. Uh, he rambles all over the place. Walden doesn't really have a plot. It's one part memoir, one part self-help, and ten parts rant about everything that's wrong with American society. So why do we still read Henry David Thoreau? He was born in Concord, as he liked to say, in the very nick of time, too, in 1817. That's Laura Dassau-Walls, who wrote a biography of Thoreau. Thoreau lived most of his life with his own very large family. The Thoreaus were a middle-class family who ran a boarding house and a pencil-making business. Henry David went to Harvard on a scholarship. After he graduated, he tried teaching, but unlike most teachers at the time, he didn't think kids learned better if you hit them. The school superintendent visited his class in the second week of his career as a public school teacher and chastised Thoreau afterwards because he would not strike his students. And Thoreau quit. Then he went to work in the family pencil factory. And he even invented a new way of making pencils. But he didn't really want to make writing implements. He wanted to write. Literature comes to a poor market here. And even the little that I write is more than will sell. Thoreau got a few things published in magazines. But he mostly got rejection letters. By 1845, when he was 27 years old, his life was kind of a mess. There really is a sense that he's at a crisis. He's tried a number of pathways. None of them have satisfied him. Some of them have been pretty disastrous. And that he's hit a wall. Worst of all, his brother John had died. They'd been close, and Henry took John's death really hard. That sense that he owed a deep debt to his brother was a big part of his life. And so he had imagined a book that would be about a journey they took together up the Concord and Merrimack Rivers. To write that book, Thoreau fantasized about having peace and quiet, time all to himself, time to write and grieve in a cabin by Walden Pond out on the edge of Concord. He's always had this dream, the very unconventional dream of going away to live by the pond and watch the progress of the seasons. It was Thoreau's friend, Ralph Waldo Emerson, who made it happen. At the time, Emerson was one of America's most famous intellectuals. He lived in Concord, too, and for years he had been looking out for young Thoreau and trying to help along his writing career. And it turned out that Emerson had just bought this plot of land at Walden Pond that was about to be purchased by some developers. Emerson happened across uh, this, this group of people bidding on it and joined the bids and, and bought it on the spot. Thoreau went and built himself a cabin there. He kept an exhaustive journal of everything he saw and did and every penny he spent. Boards, $8.03. And Two secondhand windows with glass, $2.43. Thoreau planted a garden so he could practice self-reliance, like in his hero Emerson's famous essay. But he wasn't just roughing it. He had big plans for this little experiment. I went to the woods because I wished to live deliberately, to front only the essential facts of life and see if I could not learn what it had to teach and not, when I came to die, discover that I had not lived. I went to visit Walden with Jeffrey S. Kramer. Hey, Jeff. 
to meet you. Nice to meet you. Come on in. Jeffrey is the curator of the library of the Thoreau Institute at the Walden Woods Project, a nonprofit dedicated to keeping the land around Walden Woods State Park from being developed. Uh, nice place. Yeah. I met Jeffrey in this light-filled, wood-paneled library with a bust of Thoreau on the wall and a big reading table under a giant chandelier. We have about 8,000 volumes here and about 60,000 documents, making it the most comprehensive collection of Thoreau-related material in the world. Jeffrey and I drove over to the replica of Thoreau's cabin at Walden State Park. But the replica isn't on the site of the original cabin. It's actually right next to the parking lot. Thoreau's house was about halfway across the pond, and when they decided to build the replica, which I think was in the 1960s at some point, they were afraid of vandalism, basically, by being tucked off in the woods, so they put it here in a more visible area. From the outside, the cabin looks like your basic garden shed. Two windows, a pitched roof, and a door. We stepped inside. So we're standing in a replica of Thoreau's house, 10 by 15, um, a pretty compact room with a bed and three chairs and a desk. Um, he had a fireplace and eventually put in a stove. Um, pretty cozy for one person. Yeah, it's cozy for one person, but it's not confining. I mean, it's, it's by the standards of like the tiny house movement, right. it's, it's fine. It's pretty, it's, it's pretty luxurious. It's bigger than some dorm rooms I've been in, so um, one could live here very comfortably. Thoreau lived there for two years, two months, and two days. He did write that book about the trip he took with his brother, but it didn't sell. He ended up with hundreds of remaindered copies. I have now a library of nearly 900 volumes, over 700 of which I wrote myself. People were just not that interested in what Thoreau went to Walden Pond to write, but they had a lot of questions for Thoreau about what he was up to in the woods. Um, Henry, what are you doing? Building a house out there by the, by the pond. Who, who does that? It's marginal land. It was a place where a middle-class son of a businessman who graduated from Harvard College would not normally go. People thought he was a bit odd. Even after he left Walden Pond, everybody wanted to hear about why Thoreau decided to live there and how he scraped by. So he decided to give a series of lectures. He based them on the journals he kept when he was living in the woods. Those lectures became the first few chapters of the book Walden. In the book, he criticizes the way the worker bees in Concord spend all their lives earning money just so they can wear stylish clothes and live in fancy houses. Most men appear never to have considered what a house is and are actually, though, needlessly poor all their lives because they think that they must have such a one as their neighbors have. And he's scathing about the inequality he sees between the haves and the have-nots. The luxury of one class is counterbalanced by the indigence of another. On the one side is the palace. On the other are the almshouse and the silent poor. But there's something else going on here. Thoreau's mother was an anti-slavery activist. She helped bring some of the country's most radical abolitionists to speak in Concord. But it wasn't just talk. The Thoreau household was a stop on the Underground Railroad, and Thoreau himself was an agent. The Thoreau family's abolitionism shows up in Walden, if you read between the lines. Walden takes us on a journey of emancipation of the self with only very glancing references to what's always on his mind, which is the fact of that the American economy, the capitalist economy, rests on the enslavement of his fellow human beings, and that 
people like himself, people who are white and privileged, didn't see that was part of our own enslavement to this larger capitalist system. That's the system Thoreau wanted to opt out of by going to live at Walden Pond. But Walden is also full of nature writing, really beautiful nature writing. In the morning, I watched the geese from the door through the mist, sailing in the middle of the pond. But when I stood on the shore, they at once rose up with great flapping of wings at the signal of their commander. And when they had got into rank, circled about over my head, 29 of them, and then steered straight to Canada with a regular honk from their leader at intervals. In many ways, we think of uh, Thoreau as the founder of American environmental thinking because part of his own unique direction was to turn outward to the natural world. Under Emerson's influence, Thoreau had become a transcendentalist. The transcendentalists believed that humans had a kind of divine spark. This has some really important consequences, and one of them is that you must respect every human being because all of us have that divine principle within. But Thoreau went further. He saw the divine in everything. He saw that in nature. He could see it in trees. He could see it in a pond. He could see it in the animals around him. I have no doubt that it is part of the destiny of the human race in its gradual improvement to leave off eating animals. Jeffrey Kramer and I walked alongside the pond for a little while until we got to the original site of Thoreau's cabin. It's in a grove of trees marked off with granite posts. We are standing at the site of where Thoreau's house originally stood when he lived here in 1845. Um, so as you can see from here, he had a pretty good view of the pond. And do you yourself ever have a moment where you feel something here, uh, something, you know, transcendental, or something you feel closer to Thoreau? In my earlier days of discovering Thoreau, I would come here almost every weekend or every couple of weeks, and I felt like I could almost feel like Thoreau was going to walk through the woods and, and maybe have a conversation with me. Lots of people come here for that sense of connection. People like Danielle Scudder, who comes from a strict religious family in Georgia. I grew up in a, a household where we rules were encouraged and we had to live a certain type of life. Reading Thoreau in college changed the way Danielle thought about her life. I felt like I was never encouraged um, really to, to be an individual. And so when I found Thoreau, I feel like he was saying um, it's important to explore the world and kind of be yourself in a, in a sea of, of others among society. So... I feel like I needed some direction. And then when he literally said, go confidently in the direction of your dreams, I said yes. <laughs> Danielle's sister happens to live in Massachusetts. So one year, Danielle went for a visit, and she and her sister went to get tattoos. Danielle decided to get a thorough quote tattooed on her leg. Um, how vain it is to sit down to write when you've not stood up to live. I actually modeled it on Thoreau's handwriting. Then they went to visit Walden Pond. When uh, we got there, we had just gotten our tattoos. They were freshly inked, and so I actually still had mine covered. And I uncovered it just so I could walk down to the pond and get as close as I could without actually getting uh, the tattoo wet. And I felt like it was a little symbolic for me to like offer this, uh, like offering my body to the pond, like offering my myself to Thoreau almost. Mr. Deal, my old English teacher, 
never felt that connection to Walden. And he especially doesn't buy the whole self-reliance part. The problem at the heart of Thoreau's commandments is that they only work if you have no need whatsoever for other people. And I mean, even Thoreau, of course, is a hypocrite on that score because he was dependent on a number of other people, economically and, and materially. There's many accounts of um, visits to Henry, um, including by his family. They came by on Saturdays, and on Sundays he would come to town and uh, repay visits to his uh, family and his friends. Thoreau didn't live off the beans he grew. He was getting home-cooked meals. And that quiet spot where he built his cabin? That happened to be between the main road and the railroad on the part of Walden Pond that was um, next to a little, a little side road that went down to the town's favorite fishing hole, which meant that he was visible from the main road. It was a great recreational spot. It was where everybody went for a picnic or an outing or you took the kids or you went hunting or fishing. Even in the wintertime, ice harvesters showed up to cut up the frozen pond and truck off the ice to ship all over the world. Not only that, there was the train to Boston, which ran right by the shore of Walden. The railroad had just gone in, and some of the Irish laborers who had laid the track still lived in shacks near the pond. And a bunch of other people lived in the woods around Walden, too, on the margins of Concord society. It was not secluded. He was not a hermit. He was not living a wilderness existence away from people people think, ha, huh, Thoreau, yeah, I heard about him. He's the guy who, he claimed to live in the wilderness, but he actually lived really close to home. I heard his mother did his laundry. I, I know about Thoreau. He was actually right down the street from the pub. That's Robert Sullivan. He wrote a book about Thoreau. It's called The Thoreau You Don't Know, or Thoreau, as we all know, he was called. We think that he didn't really get back to nature. He doesn't shy from the fact that man-made stuff is in the quote-unquote wild. You know, we keep thinking the environment's over there, but your, your environment is never anywhere. Your environment is everywhere. The environment, it is everywhere. But what about the idea we have that Walden is some kind of guidebook for green living? It's wrong. John Deal again. We know now that environmentally, one of the very best things you can do to reduce your footprint is to live in a city. Because, I mean, you and I both know that if somebody decides to go live in that pond, they're going to have to drive there in their Jeep Grand Cherokee, right? And they're going to need to keep that car in working order and full of gas so they can drive, you know, to the Whole Foods in Concord and stock up on organic beans. They're probably not going to be eating a woodchuck that wanders over their doorstep the way that he did. Maybe our mistake is to think about Walden the place as being the important part of Walden the book. But Walden, the book, isn't really about getting away from it all. You read Walden, and if you read it literally, you say, well, got to find a Walden pond, got to move there, got to set up, got to do all that stuff. But that's, that's not what he's doing because it's not a how-to book. It's, it's a landscape painting or it's, or it's a, you know, a sculpture, and, and you experience it. And after you experience it, you change. But how exactly are we supposed to change? If we're reading Walden now, what are we supposed to do? Delete our Facebook account? Take ourselves off Twitter? Everywhere you look, people are offering to sell us cleanses and fasts. And isn't that what Thoreau is all about? Didn't he say simplicity, simplicity, simplicity? I think you can draw a line from Thoreau to someone like Gwyneth Paltrow 
and goop and this whole idea of morally and physically superior austerity and self-negation. I mean, the thing is that for Gwyneth Paltrow, that's $3,000 yoga pants or whatever. But those are things that can be bought, right? That you can sort of buy that discipline. And, and that would have completely appalled him. But if we can't buy our way to simpler and more ethical living, what can we do? Yeah, sure, I recycle. But Thoreau would be there saying, and that's not good enough. That's Laura Walls again, Thoreau's biographer. And I wrestle with that because I think Thoreau would, well, first of all, he would demand that I wrestle with it. And then he would say, if you do not have a better way to live, why not? And so working out what that is and what that means specifically is literally what I'm doing right now. And it's because I read Thoreau deeply enough that he won't let me go. <laughs> After his two years at the pond, he went back to live in town with the salesmen and the farmers and the strivers and the layabouts, with people like us. I left the woods for as good a reason as I went there. Perhaps it seemed to me that I had several more lives to live and could not spare any more time for that one. The tragedy of Walden is that it is read as a guy who went to a pond, uh, you know, to build a house and make a better life. Really, it's about a guy who came back from the pond. So this is about engagement, not about disengagement. And in fact, the only way you, you make the world good or the only way to truly be in the world is to fully engage with it. I learned this, at least, by my experiment. That if one advances confidently in the direction of his dreams and endeavors to live the life which he has imagined, he will meet with a success unexpected in common hours. If you have built castles in the air, your work need not be lost. That is where they should be. Now, put the foundations under them. That was the actor Omar Mitwale, who read all the passages from Walden Forest. Matt Frassiker produced the story. Matt also hosts a terrific, somewhat Thoreauvian, New England-based podcast called The Briny. On our website, you can find out more about Thoreau, including pictures of the replica of his cabin. Also, because you may already be thinking about where on your body you're going to have yours inked, we've got a photo of Danielle Scudder's Thoreau tattoo. In the 1970s, Walden helped inform back-to-the-earth survivalism, but Gloria Gaynor's insistence in the 1970s on surviving was a whole different thing. They scribbled the words down on a piece of paper, and I looked at them and said, what are you, nuts? This is a hit song. This is a hit lyric. How a nearly forgotten B-side became the breakup anthem. That's next on Studio 360. Breakup songs have been around pretty much forever. For instance, there are plenty in opera, like in La Boheme, when Mimi and Rodolfo are breaking up. 
and pop music is full of breakup songs. But one tune that's 40 years old this year is so full of heart, it ended up not just being about surviving lost love, but about enduring life. To share the story of a song that's become a true anthem, we have a writer. My name is Vince Aletti. In 1978 and 79, I was the disco critic at Record World magazine. And the singer. My name is Gloria Gaynor, and I'm an international recording artist and performer. Disco was an underground phenomena for, I'd say, five years before anybody seriously above ground paid attention. It certainly seems that more and more Americans are getting more and more into the disco scene. It was a club phenomena. It was created by DJs as a way of sustaining a whole evening of music uh, by playing records end to end. It brought about a kind of camaraderie that we hadn't seen in club goers. And it was a very positive, upbeat time. Some of the records that were popular around the same time were uh, Chic, Grace Jones, Sylvester, who was one of the most out gay performers at that period, and Donna Summer. Women have always uh, been the strongest vocals in disco. The one thing that disco music never got credit for is the fact that it is the first music ever to bring together people from every nationality, race, creed, color, and age group. Never Can Say Goodbye was Gaynor's first really big hit. But she kind of uh, slipped off the radar at the clubs. The record company had said they were not going to renew my contract. I'd been in hospital. I'd had surgery on my spine. I was thinking about the death of my mother. I was thinking about the fact that I had been paralyzed from the waist down. People were going around the company saying the queen is dead. And there I am laying in hospital wondering what's going to happen with my life hoping to completely survive. And while I was there, the record company called me and told me that they'd gotten a new president over from England and that where I was very popular and that he wanted me to record this song called Substitute. I heard the song, didn't particularly like it, but I didn't care. They weren't They weren't ending my contract. I still was a recording artist. I was happy to go and do it. I get out to California with the producers, and I ask them what's going to be the B-side. And they asked me what kind of songs that I like, what kind of songs that I like to sing. And I said, well, I like songs that are meaningful. I like songs that are strong, that touch people's hearts, that have good melodies. They said, "Mm mm-hmm. We think you're the one we've been waiting for to record this song that we wrote two years ago. And they scribbled the words down on a piece of paper, and I looked at them and said, what are you, nuts? You're going to put this on the B-side? This is a hit song. This is a hit lyric. It's a timeless lyric. Well, they said, maybe it'll get a chance one day. I'm like, if I have anything to do with it, it's going to get some play. It's going to get noticed now. But then I spent so 
So we recorded it. We took it to the DJ at Studio 54. We gave him a stack of them to give to his DJ friends around New York. They began to play it. People began to request it in the club. And then they began to request it on radio because now they want to hear it on the way home. They want to hear it on the way to work. And the radio station started calling the record company asking, where is this song that we keep getting requests for? And the record company had to say, which much chagrin, You've already got it. It's on the B-side of that other song. This was a huge comeback for her. And it was also such a strong record in what it said and how people responded to it. There was the sense of real fury in her, but also determination and survival. I think first it was a women's anthem, but it was, you know, around this time that people became aware of AIDS. So for the gay community, a song called I Will Survive gave people a sense of determination and hope. This song taps into the tenacity of the human spirit and just pulls up from inside of you whatever it is that gives you hope, whatever gives you strength, whatever gives you courage. You tap into that when you hear that song. And I think that's why it lasted and why it's still an anthem. It's something that went well beyond the idea of spurning a boyfriend. People want to sing that refrain. You know, I look out at that audience. I know they're going to love this song. I know that it's going to empower them. It's going to inspire them. It's going to uplift them. And that gives me all that I need to go out and perform that song every single time. That story was produced by Devin Strolovich for BMP Audio. I Will Survive has been inducted into the National Recording Registry at the Library of Congress. Coming up... We all knew he was a genius. I mean, nobody doubted that. How a charismatic conductor taught American kids to like classical music. He could speak to young people and make them feel like grown-ups. I don't know of anybody else who's ever done that successfully. Leonard Bernstein's Young People's Concerts. That's next on Studio 360. Studio 360. 1957 was huge for Leonard Bernstein. In September of that year, the musical West Side Story opened on Broadway with Bernstein's music to lyrics by 27-year-old Stephen Sondheim, and it became an instant hit. In 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 
Right around the same time, Bernstein became the conductor and music director of the New York Philharmonic. When Bernstein took that big job, he agreed a key part of it would be doing a series of concerts for very young people. And he insisted that those concerts be broadcast on the new medium of television. With that, an unlikely TV star was born. Leonard Bernstein would have turned 100 this month. Fittingly, he is the subject of our second American Icon segment today. Sarah Fishko takes us to the place where Bernstein's TV stardom began. Carnegie Hall in New York City, the home of the world's greatest musical events. Today's event is one in a series of New York Philharmonic Young People's Concerts. To explore the Young People's Concerts. Under the musical direction of Leonard Bernstein. Written and hosted by the very multi-talented Mr. Bernstein is to explore the thoughts and spirit of that man, the composer and maestro known as Lenny. And here is Mr. Bernstein. He was a new kind of maestro. He had a rare openness, recalls Arnie Lang, who was for five decades a percussionist in the New York Philharmonic. Because with all the years I played with so many different conductors, I knew nothing about them. But Bernstein, you always felt, was a person. The idea of doing classical concerts for young people was not new. But starting in the 1950s, Bernstein made it new by pouring every ounce of his personal self into every single concert broadcast, starting with concert number one in January 1958, when Lenny strode out from backstage at Carnegie Hall, lifted his baton, and led the orchestra in a stirring rendition of this then-popular favorite. Right from the start, Bernstein gave to his young audience, and he took away. After the attention-getting fun of the piece by Rossini that kids everywhere recognized as the opening theme from The Lone Ranger, he slid right into the lesson for the day. But it really isn't about The Lone Ranger at all. It's about notes, E-flats and F-sharps. You see, no matter how many times people tell you stories about what music means, forget them. Stories aren't what music means at all. Music is never about anything. Music just is. Music just is. If that sounds like a sophisticated message, it was. Whether delivered from the podium or from the piano, which was positioned on stage so Bernstein could sit down and play to illustrate. Take this piece by Chopin. Beautiful, isn't it? But what's it about? Nothing. Bernstein was convinced that young people could understand anything if it was well-delivered. Adults had already been exposed to Bernstein's musical musings on TV earlier in the 50s. He had appeared on the landmark show Omnibus, a Sunday culture program, just as Arturo Toscanini, conductor of the NBC Symphony, had finished his run on television. Author Alicia Kufstein-Pank wrote a book on the Young People's Concert. Toscanini stopped filming in 1954, and 1954 is when Bernstein shook the world with his uh, Beethoven's Fifth Symphony, where he painted the score on the floor. So that was just brilliant TV for 1954. 
The whole atmosphere for the mass consumption of serious music seemed to change overnight. Then the oboe. Though you'd have to say all these programs were landing in a different world. A world, says composer John Cordiano, which embraced classical music. The Bell Telephone Hour presents... It was on the major networks. We had NBC Opera Theater. We had operas and concerts on television. Horowitz's return in 65 was a televised event. Classical music was loved, and it was regularly taught in school. It was part of a good curriculum. So, in 1957, the forces for the young people's concerts began to assemble. Carnegie Hall was on board, the orchestra itself, the New York Philharmonic, and CBS, then widely known as the Tiffany Network, so called for its perceived elegance and high standards. But even with all those venerable institutions lined up, it was still Lenny's show. And here is Mr. Bernstein. He was entirely responsible for all the scripts. Producer-director of the broadcasts was Roger Englander. With Bernstein writing the script and my plotting the shots, we got along terribly well. It was new in its format. It was so simple, but so direct. The idea was to treat young people and classical music with respect. Bernstein believed in teaching kids to listen to music, as he said, for its own values, not through pictures, dancers, cartoons, or other gimmicks. The main ingredients were to be music and him. With that in mind, Englander set up his Camera One. That was a camera in the back of the orchestra looking right at the orchestra's eye view of the conductor, right at Bernstein's face, full on. I wanted to introduce extreme close-ups, or very wide shots with Bernstein as the center. That was an angle that nobody had had ever seen before this time. And when in doubt, that would be the camera that would work most. Nobody could write melodies like Mozart. I assisted Roger and I also was in on the um, meetings with Lenny on the script. John Corleano, Jr., that is. John Corleano Sr. was the concertmaster, the first violinist of the New York Philharmonic then. His son, a composer, worked with Englander on the camera shots. We both had scores and marked them up, and then we compared them, and then he made a final score that was what he wanted to cut to, because this was live television. Meanwhile, the TV cameras were trying to follow the shot orders, to, for example, feature the piccolo during a solo, or to get a close-up of the fascinated six-year-old in the third row. This was in the 50s. The cameras were huge, and they lumbered around like mastodons. We had six clunky cameras, and everything had to be prepared in advance because there were no such things as rehearsals. And so it went. In the first couple of seasons, Bernstein laid out the most basic ideas about music, as far as he was concerned. What does music mean? What is American music? What is orchestration? And he personally did just about everything that could be done to entertain and engage. In the episode on humor and music, the orchestra plays a piece by Walter Piston. And then Bernstein explains how music can imitate, just like voices. That's one of the oldest ways of making you laugh, by imitating things or people. It's like comedians who do impersonations of famous stars, like 
impersonating Greta Garbo, I want to be alone, or impersonating Catherine Hepburn. Oh, it's lovely, it's just lovely. But he sings Gilbert and Sullivan as a way to understand music and speed. I am the very model of a modern nature general. I've information, vegetable, animal, and mineral. I know the kings of England, and I quote the price of Spartacle from Marathon to Waterloo in order categorical. It's a mouthful. Well, the... Another time, Bernstein gets the whole Carnegie Hall audience singing around. People didn't see that before with music education. Fun wasn't part of it. It was very dry and intellectual. You're wonderful. You're all hired. In the concert called The Latin American Spirit, Bernstein plays rarely heard music and speaks up for his very humanistic worldview. It's the mingling of these different ancestors, influences, and heritages which makes the Latin American spirit what it is, at any rate, in music. The concerts were a magnet for children and their parents in what was a different atmosphere for concert going in general. If they dressed up for it, kids dressing up to go to a concert, they had a certain feeling that this was a great event. We felt that through them and, of course, through the tube of the television. In this period, television itself was having a bit of an identity crisis as it tried to figure out what it should be. Commercial, educational, both those things. I invite each of you to sit down in front of your own television set when your station goes on the air. In a famous speech of the moment, Newton Minow, the chairman of the Federal Communications Commission, warned the networks in 1961 to behave responsibly by adding some meaningful programming to what he called the vast wasteland of the TV schedule. I can assure you that what you will observe is a vast wasteland. At that point, CBS found it useful to renew Bernstein's broadcasts for several seasons as proof of its good intentions. Bernstein's own children were happy about that, remembers Jamie Bernstein, the eldest of the three. Alexandra and I would get up in the morning with our dad and accompany him for the entire day. The camera rehearsal for him began at 7 a.m. So that meant that we would wake up around 5.30 and have a sleepy breakfast and drive in semi-darkness across town to Philharmonic Hall. From Philharmonic Hall in Lincoln Center, home of the world's greatest musical events. By this time, Another the concerts had moved slightly uptown to the recently built hall in the Lincoln Center complex, and Bernstein was plugging away at being his charmingly relatable self. You know, the shape of a musical composition is the hardest thing for most people to grasp. He quickly figured out that by using pop music, he could really keep his audience interested and focused. Uh, let's take a, a pop tune. In fact, let's take a typical Beatles tune. And I remember when he used And I Love Her by the Beatles to explain ABA form as in sonata form. First, there's an A section. And he went to the piano and actually sang in his terrible gravelly voice. I give her all my love. That's all I do. And if you saw my love, You'd love her, too. I love her. That's A, all right? 
And the audience just went nuts, and all the girls were squirming and squealing. Roger Englander got all these fabulous audience reactions. That A section is repeated exactly the same. Bernstein loved having his own kids involved. He thrived on the curiosity of younger people. It kind of youthified him, in a way. But it didn't take much to youthify him. I think he always was that young person inside, and that's why he was so good at communicating with young audiences. And so on, right to the end of the piece. Well, But also, there's that magic ingredient. I just can't account for why he was so good on television. That represents a small step forward from Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star. He came along as television came along. They, they arrived simultaneously and were made for each other. It was just one of those things. We all knew he was a genius. I mean, nobody doubted that. Uh, he could look you in the eyes, and as far as you were concerned, Lenny didn't have eyes for anyone else but you. And he could do that to uh, an audience. He could speak to young people and make them feel like grown-ups. And I don't know of anybody else who's ever done that successfully. Well, Bernstein certainly is, is, is talented. He has all kinds of talents. Uh, but then there's Bernstein to operate them for certain purposes. As far as his conducting was concerned, Leonard Bernstein's youthified, entertainment-influenced, TV-friendly image was not embraced by all, certainly not by all adults. Music critic B.H. Hagen was interviewed in 1963. He's obviously an extrovert, an ex- exhibitionist, and you can say, well, what difference does it make? Well, if you're, if you're that way, you have no discipline. Uh, discipline is important in governing uh, your handling of, uh, of a piece of music. And Harold C. Schoenberg, the chief music critic of the New York Times then, frequently addressed the question of just how much glamour and publicity any classical music career could withstand. He didn't like his conducting and also was very negative about the music. John Corleano says Schoenberg never really warmed up to Bernstein's style. He didn't like the very extravagance and passion that Lenny demonstrated on the podium. But many critics and millions of people loved those qualities and celebrated Bernstein's years with the New York Philharmonic. And the Young People's Concerts had a long run on CBS, several concerts per year. My dear young friends, I am happy and proud to welcome you to our 10th season of Young People's Concerts. They were amazingly successful. The Nielsen ratings were always good. At one point, with 34 million television sets turned on, 6.5 million of them were tuned to Lenny. And to add to the festivities, this is also the first season in which all our programs will be seen on television in color which is why I've got this moodishly colorful tie on. The programs were broadcast in 40 countries, joining American exports such as Bonanza and the Flintstones. Some people teach to live. Bernstein, no question about it, lived to teach. My father was for sure a permanent and compulsive teacher, and everything that happened all the time was somehow about teaching. Bernstein, never fearful of self-examination, knew this well. Much later, in a reflective frame of mind, he said in an interview, I do feel this, for better or worse, that when I do play music for people, that there is an element there of teaching at the same time. There is this heuristic element. I can't deny it, and I can't rid myself of it. He was resigned to it. 
but what am I going to do? I am cursed with this need to teach. So the young people's concerts and Leonard Bernstein were made for each other, curse and all. For 14 years, they used each other in a most perfect manner, at a time when you could open the foil on your TV dinner, sit back with one of the three television networks, and get a dose of cultural education from a guy called Lenny, looking straight at you. There are geniuses all around us now, on YouTube, in TED Talks, at national conferences and symposia. But before all that, there was a one-man band who taught a generation or two how to listen, and even more, how to actually hear. WNYC's Sarah Fishko. You can see videos of one of those young people's concerts on our website, studio360.org. Our American Icon series is supported by the National Endowment for the Humanities. And that's it for this episode. Studio 360 is a production of PRI, Public Radio International, in association with Slate. Our executive producer is named... Jocelyn Gonzalez. Our senior editor is... Andrew Adam Newman. Our show this week was mixed once again by... Whitney Jones. Our producers are... Evan Chung. Lauren Hansen. Sam Kim. Zoe Saunders. Tommy Bazarian. Our production assistant is... Morgan Flannery. And I am Kurt Anderson. He's tried a number of pathways. None of them have satisfied him. Some of them have been pretty disastrous. Thank you very much for listening. PRI Public Radio International. Next time on Studio 360, in the 1970s, some nobody composer wrote a generic song hoping that somebody would find a use for it someday. Five years later, a new TV show picked it. The mysterious world of stock music libraries and how library music from the vinyl era became hot among record collectors. Next time on Studio 360.